Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Thank you very much for joining and welcome to uh, a wonderful discussion today, a wonderful book launch um, of Dushka Radosavljevic's new book, which we'll talk about, which I'll introduce properly a bit later. And this is a, a quite populous podcast uh, episode, which I'm very, very happy about. I've got a number of people here sharing their insights and opinions. And I'll uh, start by introducing you all. Again, just to, to give this a, a little framework, uh, this is part of the uh, Center for Advanced Studies research group that I have the privilege and the pleasure to lead. And two of our uh, contributors today are part of that group, uh, Dushka herself and also Lynn Kendrick, whom you will hear later. But I'll start introducing you in the order that you will speak later on the various chapters of the book. First up, uh, we have Maike Blaker, who's a theater studies professor. She's a dramaturg and a translator. And her work combines approaches from arts, but also from performance studies with insights from philosophy, media theory, and cognitive sciences. Uh, much, much of her research focuses on processes of embodied and technologically mediated perception and transmission with a special interest in the relationship between technology, movement, and embodied perception and cognition. Current research subjects include social robotics, spectacular astronomy and the intersection of performance studies and space studies, post-human performativity, corporeal literacy, digital archiving of artistic work and artistic creation processes. We are also joined by Vanya Gala, who's a choreographer and researcher at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, having previously worked at Trinity Lavan Conservatoire of Music and Dance. She works at the intersection of critical dance studies, performance philosophy and experimental practices in dance, theatre and visual arts performance. Her interests lie in experimental practices with an emphasis on notions of refusal, choreo thinking, fugitivity, improvisations, black non-performances, negotiation, dissensus, hospitality and value. She's also an award-winning choreographer with performances in her native Portugal as well as internationally. We also have Silvia Jestrovic here, who's a professor of theatre and performance studies at the University of Warwick and a senior editor of Theatre Research International. Her latest book is called The Author Dies Hard, a lovely title. Uh, it's been done by Palgrave in 2020. Currently, she's co-editing with Bishnupriya Dutt the collection Theatre, Activism, Subjectivity, Searching for the Left in a Fragmented World, which will come out with Manchester United. Uh, not Manchester United, that was wonderful. With Manchester University Press, I suppose. And she's embarking on a new research adventure, the Liebichium-funded project Whose Freedom, Worksites of Freedom and the Aesthetic of Solidarity. Lynn Kendrick is here. She's a reader of, in new theatre practices at the Royal Central School for Speech and Drama in London, University of London. She specialises in ways of making contemporary theatre and performance with a particular focus on forms that draw on sound and noise, listening and radical forms of audience. She also, quite a while back in 1994, uh, founded or co-founded the Camden People's Theatre with a core group of diverse actors, directors, producers and makers, generating new performance practice, sharing skills and establishing a venue which over the years has launched the careers of a number of successful and influential theatre artists and companies. 
Seda Ilter is here. She's a senior lecturer in theatre and performance studies at Burbeck College, University of London. She's also program director for the MA in Dramaturgy. Her research interests include theoretical and aesthetic implications of technology and media culture in theatre, dramaturgy, and new writing. Her monograph, Mediatized Dramaturgy, Evolution of Playtexts in the Media Age, was published by Bloomsbury uh, also only recently in August 2021. Seda is also interested in translating and directing, which she did, for example, with Tim Crouch's The Author in Istanbul in 2015, which then went on to tour Germany in 2016. Flora Pitrolo is here. She's a scholar and a curator and a DJ. That's probably a first that I'm saying these three words together. And she was a research associate on the Oral Oral Dramaturgies project, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Her most recent book projects are an edited collection called Global Dance Cultures between the 1970s and 1980s, Disco Heterotopias, co-edited with Marco Subak uh, for Palgrave 2022, and the archive book Taroni Cividin Performance Video and Expanded Cinema 1977 to 1984. Also co-edited this time with Jennifer Malvezzi, forthcoming in April of this year, 2023. Um, she also, uh, two years ago, founded or co-founded the site-specific cinema collective Nuova Orfeo. And in 2022, she took on the co-artistic directorship of the theater festival Teatro Bastardo and the electronic music season Creature, all in Palermo, Italy, where she's recently relocated from London. And now finally to the guest of honor, as I should say, the person whose book we're discussing today, Dushka Radosavljevic who's a Yugoslav-born, British-grown dramaturg, writer, and researcher in contemporary theatre and performance practices. She's worked as a dramaturg, she's worked as a theatre critic, and, of course, as an academic at universities such as Newcastle, Warwick, Bristol, Kent, and is now a professorial research fellow at the Royal Central School for Speech and Drama in London. In 2019, and this is the the um, the project where where all this sort of originated, she was awarded an AHRC Leadership Fellowship, during which she undertook the project, which has got the uh, difficult to pronounce title Oral Oral Dramaturgies, and one time it's spelled with an A U and one time with an O, um, and with the subtitle Post Verbatim Amplified Storytelling and Gig Theatre in the Digital Age which won her the 2022 Award for Excellence in Digital Scholarship by the Association for Theatre in Higher Education and American Society for Theatre Research. And one of the outcomes, not the only one, we'll come to that, but one of the outcomes of this project is indeed her monograph with a slightly shorter title called Oral Oral Dramaturgies, Theatre in the Digital Age. This was published by Routledge only a few months ago in October 2022, and this is what we're going to talk about today. And with all those introductions out of the way, I think we should dive in and hear uh, from all of you uh, about your readings of the various chapters and your responses from your uh, individual uh, backgrounds and expertises. Uh, and I'll hand over to Micah to give us a, a, a sort of a, a take on the introductions. And she, Dushka being Dushka, she's not written one introduction, she's written two. So, <laughs> Micah, um, over to you. Yeah, let me start by saying that I've uh, very much enjoyed reading this book for many reasons. Uh, and I will focus here on what seems to me the main aim of the book. Uh, and this is to bring about a shift in attention with regard to making and making sense of theater, 
and to do so in ways that reach out towards and are intertwined with a much broader field of thinking about making sense, about producing knowledge, and about doing research. Uh, what the book sets out to do uh, is to bring about a shift with many components that are entangled in complex ways. For the intervention this book brings, aims to bring about is a shift from a seemingly self-evident and often unnoticed focus on the ocular towards the oral as focus of attention. And at the same time, the book aims for a revaluation of speech, of spoken language and of voice over writing and written language. And although these two shifts that the book aims for are connected in many ways, they're not the same. And the importance of approaching them as entangled, yet not the same, is illustrated by how, often, attempts to emancipate theatre from the dominance of writing have resulted in a privileging of the visual, of that what can be seen over what can be heard, and a reluctance to use language at all. And such resistance to the supremacy of the written word and its power over theatrical performance thus runs the risk of precisely reinforcing ocular-centrism and an understanding of language dominated by writing. Emancipating the theatre from the dominance of writing, therefore, requires a more complex move away from binary oppositions like language and the body or text and performance, oppositions that are themselves deeply entangled with ways of thinking brought about by the dominance of writing. And this book sets out to destabilize these binary oppositions by shifting focus to speech, listening and voice and the role of making, their role of making in theater and their role in making sense within the theater and outside of it. And this book does so in dialogue with a selection of live performances. Um, these are performances that place watching, listening in a dynamic and sometimes technologically aided relationship with the auditorium. Performances that use speech and sound as fundamental to the process of performance making rather than secondary to the textual, corporeal or visual elements of theater and performances. These are performances, and here I quote from the introductions, these performances overturn, supersede and sometimes reconfigure the previously dominant dramaturgical maxim of show rather than tell. And with it, they destabilize binary oppositions like language versus the body or text versus performance. And Duska's book sets out to unpack these performances and their dramaturgies in order to overturn, supersede and reconfigure our modes of analyzing, interpreting and theorizing as well. And all of this is a very complex thing to do. And this complexity is beautifully reflected in the introduction to the book. For the introduction consists of a complex interweaving of what is referred to as tracks that intersect in various ways. Uh, fully introducing this wonderfully complex way in which the introduction does all of this would take at least as long as reading the entire introduction, and I'm not going to do this. But instead I will summarize what the introduction does by saying that the tracks together paint a picture of transformations within theater practice that relate to, but also interfere in histories of thinking about the theater and more broadly in the humanities at large, histories that are deeply intertwined with writing and with ocular centrism. The introduction thus points attention to the situatedness of thinking in 
and through the theater, and the situatedness of thinking about the theater, and also to how making changes in such thinking involves much more than a shift in focus that foregrounds speaking and listening. For the implications of this shift extend into ways of understanding what research is, what knowledge is, how it is created, what counts as valid knowledge, and what counts as valid methodology to create it. The tracks that together are the introduction take the reader along trains of thought of Duska and of other authors and fields of thinking traced by her and point to questions that will be addressed by the chapters that follow, implications that will be further unpacked, and complexities and contradictions, complexities and contradictions that will not be solved. For this is an important point addressed by the introduction, that contradictions need to be embraced, and that the theatre may help us to think them, to think with them. To me it seems that the theatre is the example par excellence of the Deleuzean both and. The theatre is and rational and emotional and embodied and spiritual and material and abstract and much more. The theatre has a history of dealing with conflict without solving it with finding ways to bring together parts that do not fit, and with making mysteries, questions and contradictions experiential without solving them. At the page 36 of the introduction, Duska observes that she's troubled by how little value seems to be bestowed on the theatre and on theatre and performance research. She writes, this negligence is true not only of research outside of the field, but also of theatre artists and of the theatre and performance researchers themselves, who frequently look to other research disciplines to corroborate their chains, thus easily overlooking or devalorizing knowledges available within the field. I recognize this observation and I agree that much is to be gained for more appreciation of knowledges available within the theatre and within theatre and performance studies, but I also have two questions with regard to this observation uh, that I would like to end my brief introduction to the introduction with. The first question is about the value of interdisciplinarity. I very much agree with the observation that much important and relevant knowledge is available within the field of theatre and performance, and yes, this seems indeed to be neglected. But does this mean that we should refrain from looking at other fields to get this value in focus, or could it be that it is actually the interaction between the theatre and other fields that can contribute to disclosing this value? For it seems that in many ways this is precisely what the book is doing. And this brings me to my second question. Uh, if you're looking back now, sometime after having finished the book, what would you say is the main contribution of your book to showing what this value of knowledge from the theatre is? Thank you so much, Mikey. As I was um, sort of trying to encapsulate in my email to everyone yesterday, I'm really, I feel so immersed in, in the work still that it's really helpful just to have a kind of a perspective on the work from a number of uh, places from outside of this project. And the summary of the introductions has been really helpful in this respect. Uh, so in terms of the questions, one about the first about interdisciplinarity and my suggestion that perhaps uh, there is a, a lack of uh, kind of researchers within the field looking 
in as opposed to out outside of the field. I guess this is motivated, uh, and I agree with you in what you said about uh, the book itself actually <laughs> contradicting this statement, uh, because yes, I, I, I would always foreground um, my commitment towards and to um, interdisciplinarity. But uh, I guess uh, where this comes from is possibly to do with the way in which our field has grown in a number of different directions to such an extent that uh, we have forgotten to actually have conversations with each other. And yes, we have, you know, we have conferences and we have symposia and uh, we have pockets of activity such as uh, David's fantastic project, which I'm really looking forward to becoming more um, kind of embroiled in. But somehow I um, have felt that increasingly the trend has been to sort of look to other uh, disciplines for epistemic uh, validation of our work. And that somehow, you know, we have neglected the possibility that uh, knowledge is being produced in the in the process of uh, theatre making. And actually, Mikey, your... your um, article that has been really influential on me in my thinking here about the um, use of data and how data can be uh, turned into performatives for the purposes of our field uh, was very insightful in this respect. So, so what I'm really pointing to and, and inviting with this statement is a recognition that the, the work of the artist um, has uh, epistemic value. And I try to uh, argue for this in some places within the introductions where I, you know, I deal with this history of critique and the way in which uh, the work of the artist has for, for a very long time been um, an object of critique rather than a source of new knowledge, except for in the methodology it calls itself practice as research or practice research or artistic research, uh, which has in itself become a pocket uh, of activity. So uh, what I'm proposing here is a way of reinstating the work of the artist into the work of uh, epistemology in coalition with the researcher. Um, and that's kind of a part of the methodological proposal of, of the introduction. And I guess uh, I'm not, pr probably what's also important to say in relation to the introduction is that I'm not entirely subscribing to the idea of post-critique or that we need to move away from critique, but that uh, maybe critique on its own is not enough and that uh, it needs to be brought into a, a complex relationship with artistic process and artistic creation in pursuit of new knowledge. And so that's in relation to interdisciplinarity. And in relation to the main contribution, I guess maybe I can um, I can just refer back to what I've just said. I hope that the main contribution, one of the main contributions of, of this work, it's hard to kind of, <laughs> it's hard to, as I was saying at the beginning of this uh, statement, because I feel so immersed in the, in the uh, work itself still, it's hard to tease out what I would say is the main contribution or what I would want to be the main contribution, but one of the aspects of, of, the, of the contribution of the work that I would like to maybe take forward would be um, this idea of expanding what knowledge creation might be and how and what uh, role the artist plays in that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll go to Vanya now for the first chapter of the book, which is on post-verbatim. 
Uh, first of all, I want to say that it has been very, very uh, a great pleasure for me to read uh, uh, this chapter. Uh, also, because I come from a different discipline, my background is in choreography, and so it has been very insightful for me to learn, you know, about the genealogies of uh, this form in Britain, which are really very well traced, you know, back, you know, speaking BBC documentary radio form and uh, going into what Tuska considers to be a form. And she speaks a lot about, you know, about this form as a performative ethnography characterized by the performative ethnography where she describes the work of Anna Smith. And she goes on into the notion of counterpoint, which I'm very interested in because it relates to some notions of blackness and particular, she mentions Fred Moten. And I have some questions around that. And then she also goes into also uh, compositional questions and interdisciplinary connections and very much the role of technology in these new dramaturgies of speech and sound. I, I found it uh, very in insightful for me because it is, for me, getting into now uh, a form of uh, theatre that I'm not familiar with, and it's very detailed, but also it brings out very interesting questions around uh, this form and questions that were there. But I wanted also, and from this, I, I have some questions that come up from reading the text. That's what I would have to say. And my, my main questions are actually about how, you know, when, when Duska speaks about this form, you know, what are the, the main differences of this form in, you know, in, as a departure from the other form before, but also uh, questions of ethics, you know, how does this new form, you know, changes or not questions of violence of appropriation of others that uh, Duska refers in the beginning. So who gets represented? Does this shift in form, does any change in reality, really? And another, which is for me very much because I'm very familiar and that's one of my main research points is black practices, is about counterpoint. You know, I was really interested because the notion of counterpoint is not only musical in Moten. The notion of counterpoint even speaks about open field poetics from Baraka. And of course, there's a mention of jazz in here and of, of course of cubism, which are all forms that are actually appropriations and they actually heavily grounded in black practices, but also Moten. For Moten, it's not just about uh, the polyphonic. It's also about being polyphonic and multi-voiced and, and about the blurring of these voices and about also displacement, which I think is a very interesting thing to, that I would have loved. To, and I think it's underlying there within the text, this idea of displacement. Uh, but I would love to hear Duska to, to speak about this, you know, about how this form maybe brings and some other ideas of the multi-voiced displacement and how does this relate to who gets represented and other problems that might emerge from this, from this blurring, which is also, again, and I'm going to, you know, is very much related to genealogies of blackness that are related to glissant and ideas of blurness and opacity. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Thank you, uh, Vanya. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you on the previous occasion about many of these issues. Uh, maybe it's just useful for me to now kind of continue on from uh, what I said, uh, what we said earlier about uh, the introductions to this book and how one thing that, uh, we, that maybe I hadn't mentioned is the way in which the reason why the, the introductions are called the difficult second album as well is, is the way in which this book is sort of 
connected to the work of the previous book, Theatre Making, and the way in which this research topic and research interests, uh, in, interest has emerged from the previous research that I had done into the relationships between text and performance in contemporary theatre. And I guess one thing that emerged from that was that I had considered verbatim theatre in the pre previous book as a form, as, a, as one manifestation of the relationship between text and performance. But the way in which I have considered it was mostly by focusing on the lineages of the form within the British context uh, and the way in which, you know, the nitty gritty of the, the differences of the different nuances of documentary theatre one of which uh, is posited as verbatim theatre and the other one of which is posited as tribunal theatre. And uh, I felt that, especially after seeing some works, because a lot of this uh, book really emerges from and is shaped by the, the kind of different works that I have seen over the years, the, the basic methodology of doing this project was I've seen uh, various examples of contemporary performance and have been guided really by my interests in how the use of speech and sound in contemporary performance is being deployed by contemporary makers in different ways. And one example that really brought about the idea of post-verbatim theatre for me was the work of uh, Nick Green, Cock and Bull, which was a dance theatre piece. And what Nick Green does in this uh, piece is she uh, uses uh, the recordings of the Conservative Party conference from 2010 and uses the actual found speech, if, if, if you like, as, as, a, as a departure point for a piece that becomes an investigation of the kind of masculinity, rep, wounded masculinity, as she says, um, represented by um, the, these politicians. And the way in which their use of sound bites and uh, their use of rhetoric needs to be, according to, to Nick Green, interrogated uh, by by being deconstructed and being taken apart. So the piece Cock, Cock and Bull actually does that in two ways. One is the longer version of the piece, which lasts for seven hours, which is the the um, the, uh, the the or seven and a half hours, which is the average uh, length of the sitting of the Houses of Parliament, and then there is a shorter version that is kind of a distillation of that. But the actual form in which um, the these found materials are uh, interrogated and processed is primarily nonverbal. What we get is just the sound bites from the conference that are woven into the score of, of, of the musical score of this dance piece. And what we get is the juxtaposition of these female bodies, three female bodies, three dancers on the stage with the object of, of inquiry, which is this wounded masculinity um, that um, the artist set out to explore. And so I became very interested in the idea of counterpoint by looking at what this piece was doing and not only what it was doing in terms of what it was placing on the stage but what it was doing in terms of the effect it was producing on on the audience the way in which uh, the audience was not no it was the audience was no longer in the position of a witness which was the classic position of the audience member in documentary theater of the verbatim or uh, testimonial kind but the audience was and I may try to make this argument by kind of continuing on from what I the ideas I introduced in the introduction, 
um, it tries to place the audience in a position of agents of collective critique. <laughs> so the audience becomes a sort of a critical body, um, in, if we can say that, that is invited to uh, sort of respond to this material in any number of ways. And, and, and actually, uh, when Nika Green spoke to us as part of the project, she uh, mentioned how one particular critic, blogger, Meg Vaughan, wrote a piece in which she spoke or rather wrote about uh, her experience of seeing this piece multiple times and every time having a completely different response to it. Um, so, so I was primarily interested in accounting for this kind of work. And, and that's why I introduced this idea of post verbatim, because it was no longer, it was sort of still related to verbatim theatre, but it was trying to analogously to Hans Thies Lehmann's idea of post dramatic depart from the limitations of, of, of the form it was departing from. So I'm coming back to Moten in this uh, in a in a in a bit. I also want to uh, account for David's own work in this respect and and to what extent it was uh, influential on my thinking. David has uh, written considerably about the idea of polyphony um, and how uh, these processes of musicalization are deployed by contemporary theatre makers in. Um, making work and, and the, the affordances of this in contemporary theatre and in relation to engaging the audience. Bella Merlin uh, and uh, David collaborated on a practices research project in which they um, explored ways of departing from <laughs> verbatim theatre as well, the way I understood it. So that for me was, especially the way in which Bella Merlin uh, as an actor spoke about the possibilities of, or wrote about the possibilities of uh, counterpoint in this documentary kind of work where a performer might play a bit of found text uh, in a way where a counterpoint is created between the meaning of the text and the potential meaning of the performance itself. And so counterpoint became a kind of a really sort of key term for me in thinking about post-verbatim as, as a, an area of practice. But one thing that I also wanted to do uh, while thinking about this was to uh, think about more about the work of Anna Devia Smith, who is very often considered as the actual progenitor of uh, the 21st century documentary theatre and performance because of her specific way of uh, working with um, found testimony. And I hadn't done enough, I hadn't looked enough into her work in the previous book. And in the meantime, I had uh, an opportunity to actually see one of her pieces, uh, Notes from the Field, and to read more about the significance of her work to sociologists. And this goes back to this idea of how, what we just mentioned in relation to the introduction, how very often we take from other fields, but very rarely people take from our field. And actually, Norman Denzin, who is a sociologist, has taken very heavily uh, from theatre and performance and specifically from Anna Devere uh, Smith's work in putting together an argument for performative ethnography. And he has done that over a number of the works that he has written. And one way in which he summarizes uh, the significance of Anna Devere Smith's approach to working with verbatim a testimony is to liken it to jazz and cubism 
And what he's doing from the point of view of a sociologist, he's saying, you know, we need to have a different way. We need to valorize the different ways of relating to evidence, you know. So if we are constantly trying to pursue a, a kind of a, an evidence-based scientific approach, we are not going to get um, so close to the truth as we might if we actually foreground a performative approach. And he champions Anna Divya Smith's uh, particular way of working with testimony as being a superior uh, example of uh, using testimony um, in order to uh, further the, the, the work of an ethnographer. Uh, now, uh, then I could not completely ignore also the, the work of Moton, who writes specifically about counterpoint. And of course, he does that in a completely different context, like you have uh, pointed out, Vanya, very beautifully. I Obviously, you and I arrive at that work from very different perspectives. And for me, the interest in Moton was partly because of the way in which he's, his own work uh, is at the intersection between performance, poetry and music. Um, and he very often writes about music in his work. So um, it was an attempt of really engaging with his thinking around counterpoint and bringing that into the conversation. I guess this work has also been a way of creating conversations. You know, this book and, and the bigger project around it has been about valorizing conversation as an epistemic um, method. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying a conversation with Moten, possibly without a deep understanding of the work, the way in which I might have it if I was coming at it from, you know, being kind of positioned within black studies. I'm simply coming to it with curiosity and with uh, a hope that it might illuminate something in a similar way that actually later on, and I think maybe Sil Sylvia will touch on this later, I do with Vijay Iyer's work, which I found also very, very influential, where he writes about jazz. So, uh, so it's an, in a way kind of trying to, it's it's another theme um, that 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 is seeded here, that hopefully runs that that is picked up later on in a different way um, in the book. Thank you. Um, well, we'll hand over to Sylvia and uh, the chapter on amplified storytelling. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. It was a real pleasure reading Dushka's wonderful book. And I'm especially pleased to uh, get the chapter on amplified storytelling because it also features some of the, some iconic items from the neck of woods Dushka and I come from, including Gusle, Vukaradžić, epic poetry, some of which we, I'm sure both of us know still by heart because we learned it in school. And most of all, one of the most original figures, cultural figures, artistic figures uh, that at, at the moment in, in this part of, in these ex-Yugoslavian lands. And it's the musician uh, with, I'd say, a mind of a, of a, of a conceptual or performance artist, Rambo Amadeus. But before I get into the uh, specifics uh, of the chapter, 
I also like to say uh, what I really enjoy about the the, the book as a whole uh, and the chapter uh, itself, um, and it's it's the real creativity, Dushka, in your research, and uh, uh, by that I mean um, your dramaturgical thinking, namely the chapter, for example, this particular chapter is structured in five parts, following the structure of Yugoslav epic poetry. Uh, which is actually the structure that is also well known in dramaturgy that is well known as Freitag's pyramid. So, um, so, so I found that very exciting. And then the other thing is also your associative thinking, which is uh, characterized by curiosity, syncretism, a sense of adventure. So this chapter, for instance, opens with um, Kate Carrier's unspoken project that focuses on working with people with communicational disabilities, that makes the amplified storytelling central to the project through use of technology, then takes us further back uh, into the past to figures of blind storytellers of antiquity, to Yugoslav epic poetry, to aforementioned Rambo Amadeus, to jazz, to post-dramatic theatre. So we begin to see clearly uh, on this journey. We are never, we are never lost for a moment on this journey, and we, and we be, begin to see clearly between the uh, the links between um, the participants of the unspoken project and the blind storyteller, um, tellers such as Homer, as Dushka provokes us to think about this not as separate aesthetics, but as another way of layering. As she asks one of the key questions of this chapter, and I will quote. How the linearity inherent to writing might be problematized and augmented by the notion of montage or sampling, looping and layering, which are brought into the creative process by the sound technology. Also, uh, this I found in, I, I felt invited to think along as I as I read this chapter. So, for instance, uh, the the work of um, uh, of visual artist Christo Vodicko came to mind, who created this, um, who worked with immigrants in New York, and he uh, is an immigrant himself, and he created these gadgets called the mouthpiece with the perfectly pre-recorded stories uh, of of the of the people of the participants um, who were then uh, standing in shopping malls, malls and other. Uh, public spaces to uh, in order to encounter other people and uh, the thing with this was that the stories were perfectly recorded so there was no linguistic barrier there were no heavy accents involved uh, uh, their story was told in a with perfect clarity. Uh, however, um, uh, and, and this, this elicited curiosity, people would come to listen. Um, however, they couldn't alter anything unless they would remove the mouthpiece. So, uh, so, so this was one, one thought I had. And the other was, uh, again, involved some technology. And this is the Inaritu's contribution to the film 9-11 when, when he featured the, the, this very footage that uh, tragically became famous, people jumping from the Twin Towers after the plane hits. And what he did, he did a simple thing. He just separated the sound and the image. So in one moment, we see just the image without a sound. In another moment, we just see a uh, black screen and we hear the sounds. And it kind of brings the horror back because we have you know, these images have been circulated so much that we became desensitized. 
So this made me think about um, the practice of amplified storytelling and the use of technology. I was thinking about restrictions brought on by some kind of impediment, be it um, of communication or of sight, uh, or by technology, the mouthpiece, the separate of word and, separation of word and images, even technology that enables communication, as in the performance that Dushka described, in other words, to what extent a restriction, whether it be by fate or by design, also in some way does the job of amplifying in amplifying story, amplified storytelling. So this was the question I was sort of taking with me, and, and maybe you want to pick up on it, although I have another question in, in the end of it uh, that, that I'm more interested in in a moment. So... Um, to explore the questions the chapter raises, Dushka turns to Yugoslav epic poetry and subsequently to Rambo Amadeus. She makes a very fruitful and an original connection between Bakhtin's heteroglossa uh, and the multi-perspectival authorship of epic poetry. This leads to her idea of polyphonic conception of historiography of authorship, and I quote, uh, that provides a contrapuntal perspective and invites further reflection. So looking into various practices of layering using technology of move, to, using technology to aid movement, music, text, speech, singing that enables montage, sampling, mixing, remixing, and in instances of live performance also improvisation, uh, the chapter uh, and Dushka actually introduces the term multimodality to describe the process of meaning making via the aid of technology to the practice of verbal narration. This leads me to addressing one of one of the most inspiring aspects of the chapter, and this is the discussion on form and content. Gusle, epic poetry, Rambo Amadeus, so this, our musician with the mind of conceptual artist on the one hand, and Radovan Kor Karadzic, the convicted war criminal, at the other, all of them featured um, in, in this chapter. Uh, Dushka gives us a juxtaposition. On the one side is what she calls neo-Gusle, that imitate the archaic style of the genre, are linked to nationalist sentiments, and um, this form was also performed in such a manner by the notorious Radovan Karadzic while he was roaming free in Belgrade under a false identity. On the other side, we have Rambo Amadeus's rendering of the epic poem Smrt Popa Mila Jovovića, the death of priest Milo Jovovich, that celebrates the courage and sacrifice of the priest and the resistance to the Ottoman Empire's occupation. Rambo Amadeus, as Dushka points out, mixes Gusle with rap and hip-hop. In the video, uh, we have further layering of the footage from Eisenstein's movie. Rambo Amadeus uses amplified storytelling here to create distance, juxtaposition, layering, as Dushka describes it, the approach becomes parodic, ironic. The relationship between form and content emerges in this juxtaposition of Rambo's postmodern Gusle and Karadzic's archaic neo-Gusle. As Viktor Shklovsky's proclamation, form becomes content, form is content. Archaic storytelling reinforces the nationalist narrative and comes across as a hierarchical, authoritarian storytelling, and it stays faithful to the traditional form, while Rambo Amadeus operates in multimodality of amplified storytelling and in a way reclaims the instrument of Gusle and heroic epic poetry in a playful, open-ended way. 
there is an intertextual, interperformative connection that amplified storytelling brings that indeed embodies what Nagugi's notion of orature rather than oral tradition, which Dushka foregrounds in the chapter, describes as a decolonizing epistemology that, in Dushka's words, prioritizes network over hierarchy. So my question to Dushka is about affective registers and their politics. Neo Gusle tap into traditional archaic form and national sentiment. For those who enjoy the form and are of a nationalist inclinations, this form probably does elicit an emotional response as well. What Rambo Amadeus does with his amplifying performance of storytelling, as the epic poem indeed tells a story in five parts following the Freitag's pyramid, or the other way around rather, is an ironic distancing. Yet there is also drama in the form, in the meeting of rap, hip-hop, rhythmicality and gusle. There is certain excitement uh, that I find in the surprising beauty in this unlikely combination, that one would assume parodic, ironic, humorous, but also it actually works and even brings the pathos of the story forward. Rewatching the video in, in, in preparation for, for today, I looked at some of the comments of people who, who, who watched the video and, and I found them really interesting because uh, they were quite emotional. They were not of, a, of any nationalistic inclination, but there was certainly an affect there. And one of the comments was, oh, uh, this uh, epic poetry, again, something we learned in school, something became a little bit worn out for us. Um, one listener said, uh, Rambo Amadeus rekindled my lost love for epic poetry with this. This is the question that actually goes back to the question you pose in the chapter, Dushka, and here is your question and mine follows. Your question is, how does the work of storytelling and gender polysubjective and intersubjective engagement of the audience in the 21st century? And I follow on asking, and what can this particular story of, uh, in which Gusle meets hip-hop tell us about effective registers of amplified storytelling? Thank you, Sylvia, for this very perceptive reading and uh, relevant question. Um, I guess before I come to the issue of affect uh, and uh, especially in the in the meeting of Gusla and hip hop, um, it might be useful to backtrack a little bit for the benefit of those who are not familiar with the material we are discussing here. Um, and this reconnects back to some of the the aims stated in the introduction around um, the long historical approach and the way in which uh, some of the origins of, of this research go back to the, uh, the, the reading I was doing um, during my PhD, uh, which was concerned partly with the question of uh, why there is so little known about the performance-making practices um, from the Balkans in the English-speaking world, which, which now comes across to me very much as a question that belongs to the decolonization agenda. Um, but um, at the time when I was doing my PhD, which was about um, 20 years ago, um, I was reading about the work of Milman Parry and Albert Lord, 
the classicists who in the 1930s went around the Balkans uh, recording the gustless singers who were still creating this extemporaneous form of performance and, uh, and uh, narrative composition, um, which you have very well described in your own book, um, The Author um, Dies Hard. And I was struck very much by the similarity between what I was reading about this notion of oral composition that was being written about by a, a Parian lord and what I saw as a very similar and related practice in the film Eight Mile, which featured Eminem and his, his own uh, sort of uh, narrative uh, composition practices um, that took place through rap battles and so on. So I went back to, especially in the preface of this book, I went back to Vuk Karadzic, uh, who was the ethnographer of the Balkan oral poetry. Rambo Amadeus intervenes in this um, long historical perspective on oral composition um, that starts with the work of Vuk Karadzic, who was recording in the 19th century, the orator of the Balkans, and in a way establishing it as part of the canon of uh, the Balkans. And what the Neo-Gusle uh, movement is doing is it's um, trying to continue the same technologies of making work, making performance work, but it is now using new content of the current wars, the wars that happened in, in the Balkans in the 1990s led by people like Radovan Karadzic. At the same time, Rambo Amadeus uses the, the form, but in a different way. He takes a pre-existing um, uh, epic and applies to it the technology of hip-hop, in, in, musically speaking, and the technology of MTV video, visually speaking, in creating his own response to the ongoing wars in the Balkans. In this way, he, he demonstrates his idea of turbofolk, which was the neologism that he coined and which has really taken off in the Balkans um, as a way of promoting a particular form of music. It was uh, a, for, a term that he coined ironically, but it became uh, an official term to describe the kinds of music that tried to be uh, tried to, to recycle the uh, sort of uh, registers of folk music using contemporary technologies uh, of synthesizers and so on. However, the turbo folk doesn't necessarily have the critical distance um, between the form and content that uh, Rambo Amadeus himself however, tries to instill in his work. And he does that by layering. He layers different types of content uh, in this work, um, which create what I have called the semantic gap um, in the previous chapter for the audience to engage in the interpretation of what they are hearing and what they are seeing. So when we then come to the question of affect, there is also a historicity to it. The idea of um, 
the audience response to this type of work uh, has been recorded um, in some of the some of the existing research. So uh, in the 19th century, we have some references to how the audiences are very much moved by the Gusles and instrument. And we know from our personal experience that in the 20th century, the Gusle as an instrument doesn't really work for us in the same way. We, you know, uh, actually there is writing to say that um, the musical aspect of the orature has been completely neglected in this context because uh, it, it had no affective value on, on the listener anymore, except for in these circles of neo-Gusle where the audience is participating in the, the reproduction of nationalist sentiment. Uh, so the effective response to the audience is similar to the one which I have described in the previous chapter uh, as taking place in response to Nick Green's work, uh, where the audience um, enters a critical process. Great. Thank you very much, um, Dushka. So we go to the third sort of case study. We have heard about post-verbatim and about amplified storytelling, and you've picked a sort of a third genre, for lack of a better word, uh, which is called gig theatre, and Lynn has read that chapter. And uh, we look forward to your comments. Thank you very much indeed, and particular thanks to Dushka for giving us the opportunity to gather and talk about this important book. My task uh, today is to talk about the chapter on gig theatre. As a founder of a venue, which was Camden People's Theatre in 1993, a venue in North London, and this venue, which was and still is a kind of independent label of theatre making, I thought I was familiar with the term gig theatre. So when I wrote fleetingly about it in 2017, I attempted a footnote definition for the international reader, assuming that the term was in circulation in the UK but my sketch only scratched the surface. In this chapter on gig theatre, Dushka delves into its form, processes and origins from a range of perspectives that are very close to my heart and also revelatory of UK culture at the advent of and after Thatcherism. This chapter presents what Dushka calls a polyphonic historiography, for, as she notes, she makes the point even that Foucauldian genealogies cannot cope with a complex web of gig theatre. As well as tracing the threads of gig theatre that take place alongside alternative music, gigging and some thwarted pop careers, Dushka investigates some of the more fundamental reasons why gig theatre emerged, such as the alignment with the Rock Against Racism movement, which began in London in January 1977. Also, the growth of independent production and the incorporation of innovative performance within alternative music that was, in part, a way of circumnavigating the absorption of subcultural musical forms, punk, post-punk, rave, etc., into the mainstream. Dushka demonstrates how this cross-disciplinarity works and the dramaturgical opportunities that this affords are in turn integral to the stealthy emergence of the form of gig theatre. She observes that, to quote, gig theatre holds the potential to co-opt the process of co-optation itself by harnessing and reframing it to achieve political empowerment. Gig theatre is a wide-ranging form. 
My experience of it is the gig economy version, the kind of theatre in a suitcase or amp on a trolley one-off performance. Yet Dushka has captured a wide range of work in this chapter and in doing so commits to a series of definitions of what has been to date quite a loose term in the industry and a fairly absent one in academic writing. I've drawn out three ways in which she has achieved this, though there's so much more to this chapter, of course, than I can represent here. Firstly, she demonstrates the ways in which gig theatre is essentially anti-establishment and also anti-ennui. She has found the first ever recorded reference to gig theatre that is, to quote Brian Lavery, that it will eliminate the boring parts of regular drama. But in all seriousness, Dushka shows how this is not just a case of entertaining theatre with a touch of music. Rather, gig theatre resists normative modes of theatre making. And this is what draws makers and audiences to it. Its process, as Dushka later reveals in an analysis of the company Wildcard, requires, and to quote her again, a renouncing of the conventional tools of plays. Close quote. The anti-establishment approach may have much in common with music subcultures, yet this thorough survey of criticism and artist consultation, she identifies a more significant features of gig theatre practice as, to quote again, widening audience access, relaxing of theatre-going codes, transdisciplinarity and collaboration, celebrating liveness and community building. The second uh, definition that Dushka draws out of gig theatre is, perhaps most obviously, that it is a form of theatre which is mic-driven. This, she notes, is a, mainly a performative device, but it's also an important iconic presence that demarcates it from mainstream theatre. In gig theatre, amplification is embraced, whereas in mainstream theatre, it is more often than not concealed. I've been thinking about the distinctions between gig theatre and music theatre and how Dushka suggests that the mic stands for something different in gig theatre. It signals a voice not for, but with, a kind of pluriphony rather than polyphony, to borrow Adriano Cavallero's recent term. And Dushka reminds us that it is sound as much as the gig format that generates this activist pluriphonic potential. Her focus throughout is on how sound is a form of oral and aural intervention of, to quote again, the constructive potential of sound to create and convene temporary communities, unquote. Thirdly, Dushka explores in depth how gig theatre has sprung from this desire to generate communities. She notes that this is, to quote, earmarked, unquote, by theatre makers, and this is what makes gig theatre unique among other contemporary theatre and performance genres, which tend to focus on the singular, for example, immersive or experiential theatre forms. The association of gig theatre with festival culture rather than subsidised venues is, in part, a search for different and new audiences as well as new experiences. Dushka demonstrates this by a detailed analysis of the work of CAST, Middle Child, Rash Dash, Battersea Art Centre's Beatbox Academy, to name but a few, and of alternative venues such as Theatre Royal Stratford East and South London's Battersea Art Centre, how gig theatre is a kind of form of activist gathering. 
We might say in response to this chapter that gig theatre has become the political theatre of the 21st century. And finally, in Dushka's extraordinary historiography of gig theatre, she also gifts some ways in which researching this field impacts on writing and research. She draws the connection between audience-shared experience and, to quote again, the inherently constitutive potential of sound in intentionally constructing audience subjectivities or a preordained temporary polysubjectivity in aural theatre, which allows us to assume the collective we. Dushka's work does not separate the researcher from the practice, the thinker from the doer, nor the academic from their community, and she gives us permission to say we. Now to my question. Dushka, on page 140, you talk about how the performers in the particular example of all we ever wanted was everything, um, to quote, seamlessly were code switching between roles as musicians and character actors. How would you describe the mode of performing, or could we even say acting, styles in gig theatre? Is this a form of performing or acting that is in some ways anti-training? Ah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And actually, thank you, Lynn, for your work in your book, Theatre Orality, that has really laid the ground for uh, this investigation. And actually, it was you also who highlighted the importance of being able to say we, thanks to the intersubjectivity that sound offers. But this is a very interesting question about... Uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg question about uh, how gig theatre kind of invites different ways of thinking about training. One uh, theme in that uh, polyphonic historiography for me was also the way in which, uh, you know, the, the, the training histories that are available in the British higher education system have in a way made gig theatre possible. Um, so, uh, and it, that is contextually steeped in the um, ideology, in the DIY ideology, but also in the way in which British universities uh, have played a part in altering the, the division of labour and contemporary theatre making in Britain, and this sort of what I've called multi-professionalisation of the artist who emerges from um, doing a course like this in a British university where they are not training to be an actor or a director or a playwright or a designer, but they are engaging in a, a sort of practical theoretical exploration of theatre and uh, or performance making or, you know, it's had different names in the last 50 years since British universities have uh, introduced the subject in, in, in their sector. So unlike the training that drama schools have traditionally offered, where young theatre artists are trained to undertake particular uh, roles in the division of labour uh, of making uh, theatre or performance, uh, we have um, had theatre makers emerging from universities, theatre makers um, who are free <laughs> or, or in various ways enabled to take on uh, different roles in a single process. Your question was specifically about that particular example of all we ever wanted were, was, was everything by middle child, uh, where a code switching can be observed in the performance of the actors who 
appear as both musicians in a band and as character actors. And this, I guess, emerges simply out of the fact that these people have been given permission to do that. Um, they, they probably, it is linked to personal trajectories towards that point, uh, but it is, I guess, a combination of the influence they might have received from the way in which they were trained and personal disposition, which is to some extent nurtured in that context. And in some ways, it also then rightly uh, raises this question of how, how does this affect the sector in terms of what we offer to future makers. I hadn't got that far in thinking about this phenomenon, but thank you for that. Maybe that's the next thing to think about. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, so we're, we're not quite at the end, but we are turning to a chapter called Conclusions. So with an S in, in, in two brackets, as the introductions were also two. And Seda has read that chapter more carefully than, uh, than we all know. We have all read it carefully, but you've paid particular attention to it. What do you conclude about the conclusions of uh, Dushka's book, Seda? Thanks, David. Thank you. Um, thanks for inviting me to contribute to the launch of this um, groundbreaking book. Um, so um, I will summarize and comment on the final chapter. Um, therefore, I might be repeating some of the material that my colleagues here already mentioned. Um, to start with, I think it'd be good to say that I found this research project on the dramaturgies of speech and sound in theatre and performance in the digital age rather exciting and crucial because um, most of the works on theatre in the digital age explore aspects of theatre making that often relates to the visual. Um, I also do appreciate the clarification of the nuance between aural and oral while defining these dramaturgies and emphasising the interconnected and intersubjective acts of listening and speaking. I believe one of the great things this book offers is the critical perspective on the ingrained narratives of hierarchy in theatre and performance. The focus on speech and sound suggests a novel take on the destabilisation of the centuries-long colonisation of theatre and performance by the written word, as well as a refusal to consider speech and sound as secondary to the visual and corporeal elements of theatre and performance. The innovative approach is not merely about the attention given to under-examined dramaturgies of speech and sound, particularly in relation to specific theatre-making trends, but also about the overall architecture of this project, offering a polysubjective and polyphonic structure through the website and putting artists at the centre of the exploration. As um, we pointed out, um, I mean, Dushka said, the work of the artist having epistemic value and artists being the source of new knowledge. I think this is incredibly important. Chapter five, conclusions, um, oral slash oral dramaturgies in the digital age summarizes the project as a whole. It highlights its findings and considers some of the key notions of the project, such as the dramaturgy of layering, the disruption of closure, enmeshment versus immersion, and the digital liminalities. The comment on the selection of the four case studies in this chapter once more reminds us, the reader, the polyphonic methodology of this project, positioning the artists as collaborators that have agency in knowledge and meaning making, rather than having a passive presence as objects of study. 
this dialogic, polysubjective and polyphonic methodology of the research project not only characterizes this project, but also and importantly signifies the central tenets of oral and oral dramaturgies that the project is exploring. In line with this, I find the notion of dramaturgy of layering intriguing, particularly in its use with reference to the malleability of texts enabled by the digital technologies, and with reference to the artist's ontological position that evoked the DIY aesthetics and strategies and ideologies, strategies such as digitally aided deprovisionization, generically fluid and bottom-up views of narrativity. Such dramaturgy of layering offers an inventive take on the traditional hierarchies of meaning-making in theatre and offers a heterarchic approach to theatre-making, audience reception and theatre's material conditions. One of the intriguing points this chapter makes is about the role of technology in aural-slash-oral dramaturgies. Without doubt, technology as hardware, such as headphones, screens or microphones, have a direct impact on speech and sound dramaturgies. What interests me the most here, which Dushka also hints at as an interesting point, is the incorporation of technologies into the heart of the dramaturgy for accessibility strategies. I'd like to come back to this point in my question at the end, but suffice to note here that such connection between the oral oral dramaturgies or dramaturgical practice and questions of accessibility may offer political and perhaps resistant dramaturgies in, in theatre of sound and speech. Exploring the ontology of the dramaturgies of speech and sound, the chapter makes exciting discoveries and observations about audience reception. One of these that I have found compelling is dramaturgy of methexis, the disruption of closure. Methexis is here defined to be about participation, about sharing or contagion. Jean-Luc Lancy qualifies the sonorous with this word. And methexis is positioned as opposed to the mimetic tendency of the visual, and instead it is associated with immateriality, or as an immaterial process of making and understanding meaning through intuition and effect. The methexic quality of um, oral dramaturgies is defined most coherently with the disruption of closure, a disruption similar to the post-dramatic disruption to the creation of a unified, closed or fictive cosmos in dramatic theatre, and one that negates the closure in the process of listening. Drawing on her previous work, Dushka illustrates the methexic dramaturgies of speech and sound with reference to Tim Crouch as the author which denies its audience a reflexive distance and postpones the semantic closure while they're listening, experiencing and imagining the piece. Challenging the notion of closure, characteristic of the gaze, focusing on show rather than tell, the methexic dramaturgies of speech and sound suggests a dialogic praxis that engages the audience intersubjectively in multimodal, multimodal sensory experiences without privileging one meaning-making modality, such as tell, over another, such as show. Therefore, the audience is enmeshed in complex processes of reception, yet is not disempowered or deprived of their metacritical reflection, as Dushka says. And here again, we can refer back to Dushka's response earlier on, uh, when she referred to the audience as um, a critical body. 
Remarking the end of this chapter and book with an epilogue titled Liminalities, Dushka epitomizes the dramaturgies of speech and sound by disrupting the possibility of a closure and leaves the reader with, in her own words, an open-ended anticipatory and dehegemonizing conclusion. Drawing on Susan Broadhurst's um, definition of liminal performance as a marginalized form characterized by the embrace of technology and innovation by experimentation and the destabilization of the hierarchical relations between uh, or kind of hierarchical distinction between high and popular culture, the liminality of oral and oral dramaturgies offers a polyphonic non-hierarchical, intersubjective, layered and multimodal ontology that resists a definitive closure. The liminal dramaturgies of speech and sound in the digital age, particularly in the chaotic, contingent and globally networked contemporary culture, are contextualized here in relation to the prevalence of networked rhizomaticity that is characterized by multiplicity, fluidity, relationality and by the rejection of traditional hierarchies of value. Um, and Dushka makes some significant observations here, drawing on the works of Bali, Latour, um, um, Deleuze and Guattari and so on. This chapter signals a paradigm shift in speech and sound-based dramaturgies, specifically in relation to the impact caused by the technological innovation and technological cultures of the digital age which has been obviously considerably intensified during the COVID-19 lockdowns. One significant question Dushka asks here in the epilogue is about the ways in which the confinement of theatre to the digital realm due to COVID-19 pandemic has influenced the dramaturgies of speech and sound. This is a significant question that will surely be explored in future studies as the digital culture and trends of theatre making in the aftermath of the pandemic are still shaping oral and oral dramaturgies. But the points Dushka makes here with reference to Michelangelo Serrati's piece Between Me and P and Oliver Zones in Praise of Forgetting to offer important starting points. One of these significant remarks is the role of the archive in the absence of the theatre space and of live speech and sound. Archival material ranging from sound documents to found recordings have become the core elements of the digital, aural and oral dramaturgies. And I am very much looking forward to seeing the development of um, such questions in further studies. Maybe one final remark here in relation to um, my research, which really excites me about this project, is that I see um, Dushka's project in relation to what I call mediatized theatre, which is uh, basically referring to how theatre making reception and the material conditions of theatre are shaped by the technologies and the culture these technologies have generated. So to me, uh, your research, Dushka, is an essential part probably a missing part of this changing landscape, uh, epistemology and ontology. Um, I have prepared two questions, so uh, I'm going to ask both of them, but I um, we can leave uh, one to the end of the conversation if we have time. Um, my first question is with reference to your point about the incorporation of technologies into the heart of the oral slash oral dramaturgies for accessibility strategies. So I'd like to ask whether and how such dramaturgical strategies and acts can be considered 
political or can they offer an act of resistance to, for example, the visual dramaturgies in theatre fashion today? And the second question is, considering your findings in this research project on theatre in the digital age, predominantly in light of the, let's call, post-pandemic landscape of theatre, what would your predictions be about the evolution of or kind of the next stages of these um, dramaturgies of sound and speech, if you have any comments on that? Thank you. Wow, thank you, Seda, for, for, uh, for that very careful um, reading and also for those very interesting questions. And, and also for the format of this launch, I have been inspired by Seda's own launch to which I was invited uh, to contribute in, in a similar way back in May, uh, which also gave me the opportunity to read Seda's new book, uh, Mediatized Dramaturges, which I've really enjoyed. And I think it's, it's opened a lot of questions for me in a similar way about the future, uh, future gazing, as you invite me to do um, right now. There isn't an easy answer to either of these questions in relation to accessibility being um, centralized uh, within uh, contemporary dramaturges. I, I, I guess for me, it's, it's really just part of the paradigm shift and a, and a positive outcome of the way in which we are moving away from those uh, representational dramaturges that I didn't get to discuss with Vanya enough, actually, in responding to Vanya's contribution today. Um, the move away from um, the way in which disability was represented within the realm of dramatic theatre and the way in which moving to and engaging with more post-dramatic ways of working opens up different potentials for the aesthetics of contemporary performance that account for different kinds of disability in different ways and open up space for different kinds of technologies to contribute to this. So um, for me, this is, uh, this is part of the paradigm and one that uh, really takes us forward in a positive way. But in terms of future gazing, especially at the post-pandemic landscape, I semi-ironically mention in, in those closing lines uh, the idea of maybe what the post-pandemic uh, landscape offers us uh, uh, is a sort of tertiary orality um, building on to Walter Rong's idea of primary and secondary orality by which he means secondary orality being made possible by broadcasting technologies um, and what these works that I that we've seen that Flora and I have actually engaged with in the in the, the fieldwork for this project have brought up for me unexpectedly was the way in which these dramaturges which foreground speech and sound do it only by through media in mediatized ways. So um, both of these artists, Filippo Ceredi and um, Oliver Zahn, in their works. Uh, use speech and sound, but they do not speak themselves. Um, so that was quite interesting to me as an observation that maybe tertiary orality becomes something that incorporates the contradiction between speech and silence or speech and non-speech uh, or something third that might emerge from that. Uh, and I don't know. We will see. <laughs> I, I will have to leave it open. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Dushka. It was very good. And you're not only looking backwards uh, onto your research that you've done, but also in the future. That, that's wonderful. And you've also introduced us again to Flora, who I'd like to also address a question to. Can you tell us a bit about how you've seen this transform from a project to an adapted project due to COVID to a book? It's been great listening to all of these thoughts from everybody about the book and all the questions um, that it opens. Of course, I do come to it from a slightly different angle. And today in, in talking about the framing devices, I, you know, it strikes me that this is very much the kind of dinner party where the main and the sides are as delicious as each other or maybe actually it is sort of Yugoslav Kafana style where you do your best to progress in a linear fashion through the sort of eating and drinking but you're actually constantly seduced elsewhere um, and I would argue that across the book and the various riches of the website and then the reviews of course which I also want to mention briefly there's a real sort of structure of call and response across areas of interest, across different modes of uh, oral and aural dramaturgies, and also, uh, quite importantly, across time, uh, which is probably something that I see as someone, uh, you know, particularly involved in this project. But there's the sort of time of this project, the time of the writing of this book, and then there's also deep time and long time, let's say both lyric time and epic time. And I'll return to this um, question that Dushka speaks about in the preface um, of your thinking about these things and coming, actually coming to, to undertaking this research and then coming to writing. I'll come back to the preface in a moment. But before I do that, I want to spend a moment thinking about all of these extra materials, which I was fortunate enough to work on with Dushka's research associate on this project, but which in the context of the book now, I see in a new light, which might be worth uh, briefly signaling here. So the book has two appendices. One is a set of show reviews, of which I'd only actually read a few as I was working through this work with, with Dushka. Um, and one is a, is a list linking to all the collateral materials which, um, as, as, as a collection, make up uh, a website called auralia.space, which has come up uh, a few times in this conversation already. And it's a wealth of recordings and relative bibliographies and transcripts and tags and links and anything to deepen the user's experience of interviews with theatre makers, focus sessions on particular performances, chats with authors about the books they have written, some of whom are here, uh, masterclasses. Um, there's this brilliant decolonizing the voice training podcast course, a bunch of guides through the material which I wrote, but which can also be almost integrated by anyone who comes to the book and more than I can ever synthesize here, So I really urge the listeners of this podcast to go and have um, another good deep listen for themselves. Dushka's reviews that form um, the first appendix published over the years speak and don't speak back to the material collected on the website. And in turn, the materials on the website constantly speak back and into the book. The various issues of Lend Me Your Ears that organize the material on the website speak in and out and for and to, and sometimes even with each other. And in the end, what we have is a constant, yes, call and response and drawing inwards and outwards of materials, certainly. 
but also of thoughts. And I really want to call them thoughts for a second here, rather than research areas or questions or methods, because in looking at this collection now, I'm struck by this game of snakes and ladders, this vortex that creates an order and then disorders it. This way of shuffling the cards and returning to how things might or might not inform each other which I think is just particularly important as a mode of writing and as a mode of scholarship now. So I really want to point out this relationship, which actually other people have already sort of spoken about, this sort of the way that the book moves and the material moves, because it draws attention to the epic and the lyric. In a big and rich conversation about the poetic corpus assembled by Vukaradzic in the preface, Dushka quotes Celia Hawksworth on different ways of cataloguing songs, Let's call them folk songs for brevity. Um, and uh, writes, I quote, uh, quoting uh, Hawksworth, heroic times are the past. The lyric is always the present. This is in the preface, so it haunts one's reading of the book and also haunts the memory of my experience of assisting Dushka in this research because it gets to something that I feel is about methodology and which appears in the folds of this work and how it ripples back and forth, call and response, vortex, etc., which is this. In writing about dramaturgies of the oral, aural, we are somehow finding modes of articulation that are able to keep the epic and the lyric together in ways that feel legitimate, both on a personal, experiential, spectatorial level and on a scholarly level, a kind of work which feels to me permeated also with a set of ethical responsibilities and that stretches out an invitation, I hope, that others will pick up. There's also, I feel, an important ethical dimension in making all of this preliminary research public. If we think of all the interviews we all have locked up on hard drives, where we have unanswered questions, where we falter, where things are still in the process of crystallization, Aurelia.space is, of course, immensely useful as a resource, but also important in this regard, in the generosity of sharing the backstage work, just as the reviews are generous in conjugating different modes of, of writing about theatre. To conclude then, the preface also, as Dushka clearly and again generously remarks, displays a series of epic and lyric starting points to this work, which move from the grapheme, the alphabet or alphabets, and the getting to terms as children with the phonetic representation of language, to the ring-fencing through scripture of oral and aural traditions, to Dushka bootlegging Ekave concerts almost as in a quest to keep the live alive through the recording. But I'm also excited in the preface, Dushka, by how there are little stars. Yes, they're stars, not asterisks. Dividing one section of the preface from the next, allowing the thought to fade out and allowing us as readers to not forcibly braid together or draw conclusions, but accept that life, and thus also scholarship, is both epic and lyric at the same time. Dushka concludes her preface on a series of hypotheses that might unite these stars into some kind of constellation under a set of questions. I quote, what ensures the survival of a cultural legacy, how to survive a crisis, or to paraphrase a song lyric, how to protect oneself from change, only through change? And I wonder if we shouldn't be asking this question about performance. So in this week that I've returned to your work, I've also been lucky enough to have read about 310 performances that applied to a call we ran for the theatre festival I work for. And I'd say that about 30% of them were actually live sets. They were gigs, um, but they were kind of electronic music gigs. Um, and, and so what I wanted to sort of conclusively ask you to, to reflect on, to think, to think out loud about 
is in what ways might performance as an art form find a strategy of survival in music? Indeed, are we even worried about the survival of performance? Is it at risk? And do you think this traffic might even go both ways? Might music be finding strategies of survival in performance? Hmm. Wow, actually, thank you, Flora. I think... I just think this is a beautiful ending to <laughs> the whole thing. You know, I, 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 I cannot claim to have answers to these questions, but these questions themselves are worth staying with. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, um, yeah, I'm speechless. <laughs> thank you so much, Flora. That's, that's a wonderful uh, statement from a very uh, interesting and privileged sort of position within and sort of within the project which is uh, which is really great and i think uh, if i may add just one or two comments of my own at this point i think what or just to emphasize a few things that have been said uh, beautifully before um is really this sort of dialogic or even trilogic or quadruple logic uh, structure of not only the book but also the project and yet that you've, you've you've mentioned again flora which is not just a dialogue with artists. I think that came up a lot of times that it's very respectful and very sort of truly in, interested in the, uh, in the knowledge that arts and artists produce. And it's not parasitic, you know, in that, uh, in, in, which, which sometimes uh, art scholarship can be. It, it's also very, very dialogic with other scholarship. Uh, I, I just want to emphasize that point. I think it's come through, but I think it's, you can, when you read the book, it's such an introduction to other people's writing and such a, uh, such a well-read and such a competent and highly knowledgeable sort of synth synthesis of, of the state of research, which is just really fantastic. And it's also, uh, there's this dialogue that you've mentioned, Flora, which is sort of with the, the website and the, the book, which I've rarely seen so, uh, so skillfully and elaborately developed where it's not just, Oh, here's some material and here's my writing about it, but it's, tr it's really, uh, if, if people find the time and I urge them to do so, uh, you know, to go back and forth between the book and the, web, the website, it's so rewarding to, to do so. And what I also enjoyed a lot, Dushka, is how it's a dialogue with yourself, you know, with your previous uh, work and, and a really uh, not as in a, in, a, in a kind of sentimental or, or any, any kind of a way, a truly sort of a, a how do we, how do we um, continue thinking? How do we reevaluate previous um previous work we've done how do we engage with it how we how do we um, re-harvest it in some way uh in, in, in a positive way so, so i just wanted to, to sort of point that out again the other sort of not paradox but the other sort of thing you met you pull off as it were is and i think this has been very clear in this discussion how utterly complex it is how rich the material is how rich your book is how how layered it is and at the same time, I really found it utterly readable, which is not something I say lightly about academic work, because very often, let's face it, academic work can be very hard going, uh, you know, and can be very sort of cryptic or, or opaque or just simply not terribly well written. And I think both the website is, is very engaging and very nav navigable. Is that a word? I hope it is. Um, but also your book is just really very, very beautifully and invitingly written. So it's, it's not at all sacrificing readability on the on the altar of complexity if i put it that way um and finally i think that the, the, that last point has come through this discussion today as well that it's a very ethically conscious um piece of research it's really you know you're very very considerate about your your position what you're doing about the kind of scholarship you uh the kind of 
artists, their, their, their political standing, the reverberations of your research, but also of the kind of work you, uh, you look into. And I think that's, that's something that's just really important in these, in this day and age, not to, you know, not to dismiss or not to ignore that, you know, how, how utterly political, how utterly ethical, ethical everything is that we do and that we need to uh, address this, uh, even if it's sometimes difficult to solve some of the conundrums that we face ourselves with. But I think that's, that's another uh, great asset of your, your work. I think uh, I'd, I'd like to finish by simply, you know, thanking everyone hugely. It's been such a, a wonderful conversation to listen to um, and such a, such a wonderful gathering of, of great perspectives. And, and, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'd wish we could just, uh, continue recording for another six hours and hear more about each of your research. Um, maybe we'll do that in another episode, but for now, I'm just really thankful that you all found the time to, to be here. And, uh, yeah. And I think I'll leave Dushka with the very last word because, uh, she, she deserves that. <laughs> Thank you, David. Actually, I, I felt like I haven't really done justice to Flora's contribution just there because I, I was completely mesmerized by everything I heard in that uh, really beautiful summary. Um, so uh, all I can say really is that I'm, I hope that, uh, and I am grateful that this is possibly a beginning of other conversations I might have with all of you. Flores and my conversation has been particularly fruitful and complex and, and, and long-lasting. And this is a testament to it, the way in which she has just asked me a number of questions that I will have to go away and think about. But equally with all of you, I'm really grateful for your time and attention and close reading. <laughs> and the questions that you have left me with it's more than i had hoped for thank you so much is, is, that, is this enough sorry you made it